Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The Premier has a negative test for COVID-19 after an aide test positive. Why are we being asked to lock down across the country while the Prime Minister still has international flights coming in and out with passengers who are testing positive? An ex-cop Derek Chauvin found guilty of murder. Will it change America? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. What do you think is greater, the chance of getting snow in April or getting a COVID-19 in April? Oh, wait, vaccine! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! I think that's the first one you plowed, isn't it? Is that the first time? Oh, first time the Kurt man blows it live. Nice try. Nice try. Nice try. Nice job, buddy. <laughs> he just came heading down the stairs. Sorry, I'm late. Uh, you know, it's he's in school, theoretically. So, you know, teach. Can I uh, go down and do my dad's intro and then come back? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Uh, of course, always looking for your feedback. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, let's play a report from uh, Lisa Pileski and give you an update on uh, where we go as Hamilton receives our uh, logs. It's highest one day count of new cases. Uh, Here's the report from Lisa Pileski. Hamilton has 43 active COVID-19 outbreaks and roughly a quarter of those are in workplaces. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the city's medical officer of health, says there currently aren't enough doses of the vaccine in Hamilton to inoculate all essential workers. As we look at workplaces and and where any transmission is happening, see if we can find a pattern around those workplaces where we might target the very limited doses of vaccine that we have. Two of the city's largest active outbreaks are at workplaces, one at Oak Run farm bakery in Ancaster has infected 30 employees, while an outbreak at a construction site on Rymel Road has spread to 22 people. An outbreak at St. Peter's Hospital is also among the largest active ones in the city, with 27 infections and six deaths. Lisa Pileski, 900 CHML News. So, uh, you know, we are where we are, and... uh what do you do? You know, uh, we're, we're seeing what's happened with uh, British Columbia and the new variants coming in. Many are uh, now finally asking for more travel restrictions, which is, again, the variants are coming in from other places. So why this isn't uh, being done uh, or have been done earlier is is not sure. The United Kingdom has said they are banning all flights from India because of the terrible situation that they are in. And, and the UK is certainly farther, a lot farther along in vaccination, uh, than Canada is. But yet, uh, we still have no word on, uh, whether the, we're going to ban flights from areas that are considered hotspots. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us. Oh, I'm sorry. I've mixed up my guests here. Let's bring in Dr. Kerry Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Your thoughts on where we are and obviously now the lowering of the age of AstraZeneca down to uh, 40 plus. It seems to be people are are jumping on board. It really does seem to be people are jumping on board. And I'm I'm very, very pleased to see that. Uh, You know, we've had so much miscommunication and, and poorly delivered information related to AstraZeneca and, you know, my understanding is people are really, really lining up in that, what, 40 to 50, 55 age cohort. And that's wonderful news. It's a great vaccine. And, you know, this is it's not just about the people receiving it. It's good for all of us. And your thoughts on and again, there's been so much uh, uh, different information in regard to to AstraZeneca. Were you surprised on the weekend when the federal health minister said, well, the fr- provinces are free to use this to anybody over 18? And then, of course, once that word went down immediately across the country, people started doling it out to those uh, 40 plus 45 uh, in Quebec. Are, are you surprised that change of of, uh, of attitude from the government? Oh, look, the government 
<laughs> it has been so confusing, and this is—it does surprise me. I mean, I do think it's—it's it's an absolutely safe vaccine. You know, I've now had it myself without any hesitation. Um, but having said that, we have absolute responsibilities to protect people, and so you know, you you want to give people as much information as possible. But you know, the mixed messaging and the back and forth has been so destructive. Um, it really has. So I wasn't particularly surprised. Uh, we've seen so much of this back and forth. Uh, obviously, we're starting to see more and more being vaccinated with the first dose as we withhold the second dose. Uh, now we're uh, 25% of Canadians have had the first dose. Unfortunately, it's only 2.5% that have had the second. We all remember we've got to be careful until we get that second dose. How concerned are you the, uh, about the ability to get that second dose into arms, considering where we've been for the first dose? You know, I, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm I'm kind of being overly optimistic here, perhaps, but I'm thinking if things go well with the rollout, they're not going so well now, but I mean, in the weeks and even months ahead, that that sort of four-month period, because that's still quite a ways off for a lot of Canadians, will be shortened. Um, you know, my, my understanding, so I'm not a virologist, but my understanding of the data is, is that that range is still absolutely safe and, and, and good. But I'm very much hoping that if we really do end up up to our necks in vaccines, as our federal government keeps telling us, um, uh, you know, that, in fact, this window can can be shortened and we'll be in a good position. I do think our country's made a good decision by focusing on first doses, because look at the look at the reality we're in. Look at the difficult situation we're in. Uh, many upset about uh, lockdown, and we can certainly understand why, the fatigue. This has been over a year now. But are you surprised that we're being asked to, to, to well, to, to lock down? Well, everybody seems to be flying around. Well, others seem to be flying around. Uh, we're certainly hearing uh, of the situation and how bad it is in India. Uh, the U.K. banned flights, or will ban flights this Friday, as of this Friday, going in and out. Yet we uh, continue to let uh, flights in. In 17 last week came in with uh, positive cases that that uh, possibly can affect 2,500 passengers just in that one week alone. Are you surprised we're not doing more to curb air travel, especially when we're telling everyone to stay at home? You know, I'm very surprised. And, you know, there could be something I'm missing, but I don't think so. When you listen to the federal government, they're saying they've got this. We have one of the most advanced, sophisticated, you know, restriction patterns uh, protocols for international travel in the world. You know, I'm not seeing it. India is now surging, as you've clearly said. Uh, I do not think, I could be wrong, but I doubt it. I don't think we have any restriction on Brazilian flights, either, or people no, coming no. in from Brazil. And we all know Brazil's in a terrible situation. So, like, how could this be okay? I, I really must be missing something here because I don't get it. Um, you know, because I don't need to tell you or anyone listening the amount of sacrifices we're making. I mean, we've essentially been locked down since November. Uh, you know, we, we really need all the help we can get. And that includes uh, getting this international travel situation under control. Uh, we've uh, you obviously mentioned getting your shot. Uh, I had mine uh, last week, and and whenever I mention that, uh, people on the air say thank you for for mentioning that, and we need you to mention that more because that will help ease some of the uh, hesitancy that we are seeing. Uh, we've obviously started to see leaders uh, get vaccinated. Now that we've dropped it to forty, should we see the prime minister roll up his sleeve and get an AZ shot? You know, probably. And I think he's I think he's ready to do so if the delays don't stop him. You know, it's very interesting to see how differently this plays out in Canada and the United States, because, you know, the Americans, their position is right away at the beginning of a pandemic, you know, get all your political leaders vaccinated right away. Uh, you know, and our position has been, no, our leaders are going to wait until they normally fall into the queue. So very, very different reactions. But yeah, and I, my understanding is, is our prime minister is willing to be vaccinated and probably with AstraZeneca, which, you know, I, I as I said, I'm not a virologist. I followed this as closely as I'm capable of following it. And I think AstraZeneca is a great vaccine. I was really happy to get it. Have you heard any issues around possible shortages of AstraZeneca? Obviously, yeah. <laughs> a lot of our supply comes from India. And if India is in a dire scenario, I mean, they're not going to be eager to, to let it out the door to the highest bidder. What is your what, what have your uh, what have you heard about AstraZeneca supply? 
Well, you know, with all of the supplies, I, I, I think the interruptions are not, I, I don't know is the honest answer. I really don't know. Um, India, it, it's confusing to me why India, India has tried really hard. They put a lot of work into uh, their pandemic, um, you know, protocols, a lot of work. Now, they do have a very significant human population, so I, I'm sure it's been a challenge. But I'm surprised India has really, you know, slipped into such difficult situations. You know, I think vaccination um, interruptions, vaccine rather interruptions, are going to be quite common. You know, we were shocked the first time, you know, it was Pfizer and then Moderna and AstraZeneca. I think, you know, this is the way it is. Um, you know, I, I know this, many would say this isn't the time to be pointing fingers, but you know, we wouldn't be in the depth of this crisis, particularly in Ontario, if the federal government had secured supplies, you know, the yeah. way Britain and the United States uh, had earlier on. Um, you know, so I'm really hoping they're going to do everything they can to keep this moving. I, I find it a bit disturbing to constantly hear the feds talking about, you know, well, don't worry by September. Well, you know, it's not September and people are dying now. Um because that's always the refrain is eventually we're going to have a lot. Well, you know, eventually is not now. Uh, they're not here yet. So I, I think there could be some more in- interruptions, but I do think generally the worst, you know, the, the supply is going to increasingly rise without question. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. All right. Uh, many asking for flights to be grounded from certain hotspots uh, around the world. Uh, we remember talking about this a while ago, and, and I guess it sort of has eased off. Uh, the U.K. announcing that uh, this week they are uh, banning flights from India. India having a, a terrible time right now uh, in the midst of a third wave. But let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. First of all, your thoughts on lowering the age of AZ down to 40. It seems like now there's uh, a a big demand to get this shot again. Well, that's partly because of the shortage of supply from Pfizer and Moderna. So I think the National Committee is looking at the evidence on whether they can move forward lowering the age while still getting the maximum benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it seems like that's the direction they're going for. Uh, what about uh, travel at this point? Um, obviously, across Canada, locking down from uh, coast to coast, yet we still see air travel. Are you surprised? I am surprised because I think there has been clear evidence now that international travel and screening of symptoms and asymptomatic patients at borders, within borders, within countries, is actually beneficial to reduce the spread of the virus. Yet it seems like we're not doing an, a, as aggressive of measures to do so. We heard the prime minister say that they're looking now at India. India having had such high numbers, they're looking at whether the UK's restriction around India travel can be adopted here in Canada. But it's still not clear what Canada is going to do in terms of its travel restrictions moving forward. But really, when you think about it, Ahmad, how can you ask people again at this stage of the pandemic to go back inside when, in fact, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing people flying around? That is the big policy problem. And I think that's the issue that we're all sort of trying to grasp understanding around. I mean, when you look at the evidence, Scott, it's very clear that, you know, there were, there were an incredible study done by Cochrane, which is one of the highest sort of authorities on research, and said that travel restrictions actually do provide some benefit. Uh, especially when you screen for symptoms and you provide quarantine. What we're understanding is, I mean, we don't need to take this very far, right? We can look at our own country, look at the Atlantic region. Uh, They've been able to have very low numbers because they've been very, very strict about who's allowed in and out of their province, in addition to their screening and quarantine in place for essential people that need to travel within their own bubble. So we do know that uh, border closures and screening do work, but they need to be uh, implemented early. And with early reports about some very you know, scary variants out there from other countries, India is looking that possibly one of the reasons why they've had this such high spike in numbers could actually be due to a new variant that we're not aware of. And I think the country right now, Canada, is paying very close attention to see if that's the case. However, what I would say from a policy perspective, that if we suspect um, such a problem that we need to actually ban the flights immediately and we can't wait till the variant gets into our borders and then we start acting. I mean, we fell in that trap before and, and we saw what happened with the Brazil variant. Uh, obviously now seeing an uptake in AstraZeneca as we've lowered the age. 
Um, have we? Have you heard any issues around the supply of AstraZeneca? No, there doesn't seem to be supply issues to AstraZeneca. However, those things change literally minute by minute. Uh, and so I'm very careful to say any statements about supply. Every time we assure the public that we're going to get a supply in Moderna, you find out in the next hour that there's reports of delays. And so as far as AstraZeneca is that we actually do have a steady supply of it. Uh, there are concerns with the India variants that there might be a delay in shipments because some of our vaccines does come from India. There is no indication that it is to be true right now. As far as we know, that there are enough supplies of AstraZeneca to accommodate the 40-plus age group that's now eligible to get vaccinated. Uh, and then we know that Pfizer we're getting more of in the near future. Uh, has there been any clarity uh, from NASI on AstraZeneca? Are they going to catch up to where it appears the rest of the country is at this point? Uh, there is not. There was supposed to hold a press conference, which actually got delayed or canceled. We're not clear about what happened there. So we're waiting to hear exact details on, around the use of that. I think the one thing that's coming out of the NASI is that they're reconfirming and sort of reassuring the public that AstraZeneca is safe. I think we're still seeing some hesitancy around taking AstraZeneca vaccine in, in specific, but I think the messaging is clear that get the vaccine that is offered to you. Uh, there is also still questions around the hotspot communities and the ability to book. Uh, many people are still complaining, people who live in hotspots within the GTA region, that they're not actually able to access the vaccine yet or vaccine booking from the website. I'm going to ask you a tough question here, Ahmad. Has NASI helped in this pandemic well, or have they have they added to the confusion? <laughs> I think it's a great question. I think it's a fair question to ask. And it's something that we need to always be thinking about is this is the role of the scientific committee in advising policy. I think what there is a big misconception there is that, you know, scientists, whoever they are, whether they're healthcare professionals, professionals or experts, uh, health policy experts or uh, public health professionals, when they provide advice to committees, to governments, that's an advice. It's not a mandate. It doesn't mean that the, the government in here, in this case, Ontario government, is actually following that advice. And Scott, you know, we did hear reports that a lot of people within that committee have actually voiced concerns that their advice is not being followed. And so we need to be very careful distinguishing mm. the two. Those, those are individuals who are scientists by training, who are providing advice on the best available evidence. Whether the government follows the advice or not is not within their jurisdiction. They can't force the government to follow that advice. It's essentially up to the government and the public holding the government accountable for following the scientific advice. But again, Health Canada approved this way back in February for any anyone 18 plus. You know, if we had left it with that information, we'd be miles ahead by now, would we not? Well, no, we couldn't have because the, there was we, we always said that their vaccines are new and that we need to study real time evidence. And so what yeah. happened was, you know, what essentially happened was the committee was reviewing reports of clots that were happening in Europe. And what they found out was that, you know, mostly females under the age of 50 developed very rare, exceptionally rare uh, blood clots, and therefore they went to the side of caution. This will continue to happen. Don't be surprised if we get reports in the next month about Pfizer or yeah. uh, Moderna, and we, we already heard about Johnson & Johnson. The point there is that side effects are common with any vaccine or drug, uh, and they're expected to happen. However, they're very, very rare. And so the risks of getting the vaccine uh, is much lower than the benefits of actually having it. And so the committee's job is to continuously evaluate that evidence that emerges. The same applies with international travel. Right now, the evidence tells us that closing borders has some benefit uh, in securing the sort of the spread of COVID-19. That might change as we study more and more countries and their ability to control borders. But when we look at our own borders within Canada, the Atlantic provinces are providing a very clear example that closing borders does work. All right, let's end on a positive note, uh, note Ahmad. Uh, advice for those 40-plus who now have this opportunity. Get the vaccine if you can. If you can, whatever vaccine is offered to you and, and you want to take the vaccine, get it. I say want because I recognize that some people are still not comfortable getting the vaccine. And if you're not, then please reach out to people like myself and others who are willing to share with you the evidence on vaccine and its safety. Talk to your family health care provider. They're your best resource talk to your family doctor, to people within your community that you seek for leadership and guidance and ask for the latest evidence on the safety. Educate yourself and make that informed decision and get vaccinated if you are convinced about the safety of the vaccine. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Rick Zamperin. We hear him. I never get to see him. I don't know when the last time it was I saw Rick Zamperin. Uh, Sports and News Director for 900 CHML. He's with us now. Rick, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. I'm good. I look relatively similar to the last time you saw me. All right. Well, that's good to know. Uh, so, Rick, uh, lots of chatter of late in regard to the CFL, what happens moving forward. We've even heard of them merging and expanding and such. Uh, so t- talk about the situation with the CFL and how they arrived at the decision you're about to tell us on. Well, big news today, obviously, from the Canadian Football League. As we all know, last year was wiped out by the pandemic. It just did not work financially uh, with the border closure, too many logistics. Uh, you know, there was some thought of a bubble formatted Winnipeg at one point and starting the season on or around Labor Day and continuing with the Grey Cup, but that really uh, evaporated as uh, COVID-19 continued to take hold of uh, our society. Uh, Earlier this year, you know, Commissioner Randy Ambrosi was uh, saying that uh, that they are committed to playing in 2021, and that's uh, a reaffirmation of what we're hearing today, is issued a statement saying that we will play CFL football in 2021, but it is going to look a little bit different. The season was supposed to start, or at least was scheduled to start on June the 10th, with the Ticats in Winnipeg, a rematch of the 2019 Grey Cup Championship game. The season as it stands right now, the target date, quote-unquote, to start the regular season would be August the 5th. So that's about a month later than they originally planned. Instead of a traditional 18-game season, it's going to be a 14-game season. And that means that the Grey Cup, as we know, is going to be played at Tim Hortons Field this year, knock on wood, is now going to be played instead of late November on December the 12th. My, that could be interesting, especially on uh, April 21st, where we've seen snow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this could be history in the making right there. Uh, obviously, you're talking about August 5th. How did they arrive at this date? What's the criteria? What makes them think that, that this is uh, doable? Well, there's a few things at play here. Number one, obviously, is the border closure. Now, that is not to say that uh, American players, and there are many of them in the Canadian Football League, could not come to Canada because you can still, obviously, as you've discussed on the show, you can still fly into our country from abroad. Um, But that would give the league, uh, you know, 10 to 14 days to get them here, get them quarantined, and then get them ready for the season. So there would be, you know, a truncated training camp. We probably won't see any preseason and games, but at least a two-week kind of training camp for players to get back into the swing of things and then launch into the season. So they're thinking mid-April, we'll start this training camp, we'll start the season in early August. What about fans in the stands? Well, this is why target date, quote-unquote, is kind of underlined in bold font and really uh, at the crux of the matter, because if there is not, as the commissioner put it in his note to fans, a significant number of fans in the stands in a significant number of venues at the start of the season, this may not work. Uh, As we know, the Canadian Football League is heavily reliant on gate receipts. So if there is no one in the stadiums, that is a big chunk of revenue that is out the window. It would cost the league and cost each of the nine teams more money to play their games without fans in the stands because that revenue stream would be wiped out. So if the CFL can't come to a return-to-play agreement with public health officials, number one, and governments, the CFL is in six different provinces, if those two things are not hammered out and there's no fans allowed in the stands, I don't see this thing flying. What do you think the Grey Cup will look like in in the Hammer December 12th? Well, yeah, let's let's think optimistically because, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy myself and I would love to see, number one, the Grey Cup in Hamilton again because we haven't seen that since 1996. Mm-hmm. But in December, I mean, we've never seen that. We've never seen a Grey Cup in December. December 12th at Tim Hortons Field, man, what a party that would be. I can envision the snow falling down again as it did in 96 at Old <laughs> Iverwind Stadium. And who knows, maybe the Tiger Cats, who are built to win now, their window of opportunity for a Grey Cup title is open right now. Perhaps a Hamilton-Winnipeg rematch in 2021 in December. That would be amazing.
It, and even with a you know an abbreviated schedule, you know that even just increases the hype. You can see that being a pretty exciting format. Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, traditionally, it's an eighteen-game marathon, and you know, you we've seen it in the past. You know, not too long ago, the BC Lions lost their first five games of the year, and they ended up winning the Grey Cup. So, mm. with with a shorter season, fourteen games, it's more of a, a little bit of a sprint. You can't fall too far behind your opponents because. Uh, if you do, you're not going to be making the postseason. So, yeah, it would add, I think, an, an added layer of excitement. Number one, to have fans back in the stands, and let's hope that's a reality come the summer. And number two, having four less games, you really have to be quick off the mark uh, to get those Ws uh, in that column. All right, we certainly know how this league has suffered for obvious reasons uh, during this uh, global pandemic. We've heard of it merging, expanding, doing this, other partners coming on board. Where where does all that discussion going? Well, it's still very much up in the air, of course. The XFL is a potential partner of the Canadian Football League. We know that uh, Hollywood icon Dwayne The Rock Johnson, his ex-wife Danny Garcia, and Redbird Capital, uh, the investment firm who uh, have purchased the XFL from Vince McMahon, the uh, owner of the uh, WWE for $15 million last year out of bankruptcy. You know, the big ticket item for the XFL is they have a lot of cash, or at least that is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the bird's eye view, because all those three entities that control the XFL uh, are, are loaded financially. Uh, whether it's a loan, whether it's a merger, whatever the case is, there is still a little bit of fire where the smoke is coming out to. So I won't, uh, I won't say no to a potential merger. Uh, as a CFL diehard, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's not uh, a case of uh, you know this year, but maybe in a few years' time they'll come together. But I want to retain the uh, the Canadian rules to the game. That's for sure. Uh, we've been through this, Rick. Though, do you think people would want this? Support it. Uh, from a lot of CFL fans I've spoken to, no. They want no part of the XFL. They want no part of anything to do with U.S. rules uh, or ownership. Uh, no, they want to keep it a Canadian game. Rick Zamprin with his sports director for 900 CHML and, of course, talking about CFL, looking to restart the season and at least have an abbreviated uh, schedule for this year. Rick, thanks for the time as always. Be well. You too. In a statement out late last night from the Premier's office, it was revealed Ford had also been tested for the virus after coming into contact with a staffer on Monday. He's since tested negative, but will continue to isolate and follow the guidance from Toronto Public Health. Same thing for the others who also came into contact with the staffer. Now, when asked about Ford's absence from Queen's Park yesterday, Health Minister Christine Elliott indicated he was busy. He's devoting his time to helping get us out of the pandemic so that we can get more vaccines. Ford will continue to lead the province's pandemic response and community communicate with the public and officials while in isolation. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP, Flamborough, Glanbrook, and uh, find out exactly what is happening with the Premier. Uh, Obviously, he's been visibly absent for the last couple of days. Uh, Of course, there goes the social media, the same ones that had the uh, conspiracy theories of uh, of vaccines in the fridge. Uh, Now, where's Doug? Where's Doug? He's getting tested. My goodness. Uh, let's bring in uh, MPP for F- uh, Flamborough-Glanbrook, Donna Skelly. Donna, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I hear you have your vaccine. I was lucky enough to get the AstraZeneca as well about two weeks ago, so I'm uh, I'm relieved to a degree and really encouraging anyone who is eligible to, to book your um Book your shot online, and when the vaccine is available, to please get vaccinated. You know, it's interesting, Donna, because uh, I got mine before this rush, this current rush wave started uh, after they lowered the age down to 40. And I, I like no problem. I mean, walking in, walking out, the pharmacist said, you know, people aren't showing up for appointments, uh, that po- appointments were going unbooked. Uh, however, and, and he did say, well, but once they lower the age, they get a surge for a, for a few days. And that's what we're seeing now. I've talked to friends anecdotally that just, you know, they can't, they're having a, a trouble booking an appointment now because now the, the mad rush is on, uh, now that it has been lowered, uh, to 40. So hopefully we're going to see a few more with the lowering of the age. And anecdotally, it appears that younger people are accepting of the AstraZeneca, which is a good thing. And I just hope that uh, as we get more vaccines, that they um, that they sign up and, and get vaccinated. That's one of the ways we'll get through this. All right. Uh, many on the opposite side of the aisle uh, screaming, where's the uh, premier? Do you want to update us on what's going on there? 
Well, uh, the premier was um, came into uh, contact with a staff member who tested positive for COVID-19. And as soon as he was made aware of that, he left and received a test. It came back negative. He is now self-isolating and following all of the health and safety measures that we all are expected to follow. But uh, he did also have his vaccine, his AstraZeneca, about a week ago. So he's at home. He has tested negative to being exposed or rather to having COVID-19, but he is going to remain in self-isolation for a while. He is, however, continuing to work. Since this uh, pandemic um, struck last year, he hasn't taken a day off, and uh, he's certainly not going to start that now, but he is in self-isolation. Do we know how long he's in self-isolation? Will it be 14 days? I don't know, uh, but I can. uh, um, I mean, he he can work virtually. We all can work virtually, I'm sure. He's able to continue to do what he needs to do. And uh, rest assured, he's uh, he's on the phone and he's online and he's doing what he can to make sure that we are acquiring as many vaccines as we possibly can and that we can keep people safe and and eventually reopen the economy and get through this third wave. Uh, We understand he's looking for vaccine. You know, we've heard others say, stay in your lane. Uh, What is he exactly doing? Oh, well, he has been reaching out. He's been very active, uh, reaching out to anyone that he can. He's spoken with the ambassador to Denmark, uh, the Consulate General of the United States, both of whom, by the way, are advancing our request to purchase any additional supply of AstraZeneca to their respective administrations. Uh, he has spoken to Norway's ambassador, uh, to the EU ambassador to Canada, uh, the High Commissioner of India yesterday to see if there are any extra AstraZeneca vaccines. He is doing absolutely everything possible to secure additional vaccines for Ontario. Scott, we need vaccines. The problem is not getting them in the arms. We have a a very robust plan. We have um, uh, a significant number of pharmacies that are capable of and willing to vaccinate people. We have a system that works. Our health units have uh, created a number of permanent and mobile clinics to bring vaccines to workplaces, to um, bring people to the vaccine. We just don't have vaccines. And contrary to what some people have stated, we do not have vaccines sitting in freezers waiting to go out. All the vaccines (laughs) that are sitting in a freezer have a name attached to them. They are there. They are spoken for. They are part of the rollout. But we do not have, we are not sitting on an abundance, a surplus of vaccines. When the vaccines arrive, they are immediately spoken for and they are sent as quickly as possible. We need we know, more vaccines. We know the drop in the age has a lot to do with the fact that, um, uh, you know, obviously there wasn't a lot of uptake uh, because of mixed messaging around AstraZeneca earlier on. Uh, how long is the AstraZeneca going to supply with uh, supply going to last? Well, as we've lowered the age to uh, 40, I've heard rumors floating that, that, that there may be a shortage of AstraZeneca. How much AstraZeneca do we have? Is it when is the next shipment? Do we know? I do not know that. I do know that we are always, and he is on the phone probably as we speak, uh, trying to secure more AstraZeneca. The nice thing about AstraZeneca is we can now uh, direct uh, younger people to uh, to the website and start uh, putting their name in and, and getting and getting that vaccine. We have vaccinated four million people to date. Just yesterday, it was about one hundred thirty seven thousand people uh, received a dose. That's about in Ontario. I think we have just under 12 million adults over the age of 18, so we have about 31% of all adults have received at least one dose. But, of course, we also have to secure a second dose for people because they're... Yeah, this problem's going to come up again in about... Yeah, this problem's going to come up again in about 90 days when everybody's sitting there, well, where's the second one? All right, let's talk about paid sick leave. This is a huge Mm -hmm. issue. Uh, We're hearing uh, bantered around. Um, uh, Now we're hearing that that Ontario may uh, change course here, change direction, and and perhaps offer this. What can you tell us? Well, I want to be very clear that there are paid sick days for people who have been affected by COVID-19. Currently, it is 20 paid sick days. This is a federal benefit. The problem is the top-up. We were really hoping that the federal government would address this in their budget. They did not. It was, uh, I think it was a glaring shortfall. Paid 
sick days are a federal responsibility. They have always fallen under federal jurisdiction. We do not have the resources to absorb an additional cost during a COVID-19 pandemic. This is something there is about $700 million sitting in their fund right now to dole out to people who need it. What we were hoping for was the top up to fill the gap between what they would be receiving under the existing program and what they were hoping for uh, to be more consistent with their own pay. At this point, as I said, we're disappointed that they didn't. We've been advocating for it, not just Ontario, but all of the premiers across Canada. So we are now looking at what we can do to help uh, to help fill the gap. It's not something we wanted to have to do, but we were disappointed that it wasn't addressed in the federal budget. Are any other provinces doing this? Are any other provinces um, topping up what the, the federal government isn't doing? And, and why is this not addressed to the federal government instead of the provinces? Well, it's not, a, it's not a unique problem in Ontario. Workers right across the country rely on this program when they are sick. All of the premiers were hoping that the federal government would have recognized it. For 81 years, this was fell under federal jurisdiction. It is a federal issue. We can't you know, we can't absorb um, and take on funding requirements, requests um, as a provincial government that are that are traditionally federal. This is something that should have been addressed in the federal budget. It wasn't. There were a lot of things, actually, in the federal budget that I'm disappointed that they left out. I mean, they didn't talk about additional vaccines. We're in the middle of COVID-19 in a crisis in the third wave, and we have nothing in the federal budget that talks about getting more vaccines. They could have allocated additional funds to pay premium to secure more vaccines. We know, Scott, that that's what it's going to take. That and stricter measures at the airport. We have got to stop flights coming in. Yeah, you know, Donna, I can't, you know, Donna, I'm getting a lot of flack from people. And it's like, why are we locking down while there's planes buzzing around our heads? Whether it's within the country, whether it's uh, flights coming in from India, where uh, we know they're just having a terrible time with this. Uh, UK has already banned flights from India, and we're still thinking about it. The UK is already fully vaccinated. You know, they're opening the doors. We're only... You know, 25% there with the first dose, yet we, we've got airplanes coming in all the time. Last week alone at Pearson Airport, 17 flights arrived with COVID-positive cases. Up to 2,500 passengers came through Pearson last week uh, that were exposed to a positive case of COVID-19. They then moved through the community, and that's how you get transmission through the community. We have to tighten our borders. The the federal government, Justin Trudeau mentioned this when COVID-19, when we first had our first... Well, his latest quote is he's open to... His latest quote is, well, we're open to more. Well, when? when? I I don't know, but we need him to stop it. As I said, 17 flights last week alone. Last week alone, positive cases. We can't do anything. We as as a government, it's a federal jurisdiction again. We can't stop people from coming in through Pearson Airport. They should also be requiring um, testing at these, from these uh, people coming in through these countries where there are hotspots. India, I mean, we've seen the Brazil variant and what happened in D.C., and we're seeing that spread now in Ontario. We have to do more. We can't just rely on people to wear masks, wash their hands, and social distance. When we know we have people coming in from other countries that are positive, carrying this variant. And they are far more deadly, and they are spreading fast. We have to shut down the borders. We have to put in uh, testing at the very least. But we seem to be hearing nothing from the federal government. And again, nothing in a budget in the middle of a crisis talking about vaccines or bringing in stricter measures at our borders. Donna Skelly with us, MPP Flamborough, Glambrook, uh, giving us an update on the premier. And uh, obviously they are looking at uh, paid sick leave. When can we hear more on that, Donna? Any idea? Uh, Within the next few days, I understand that our government is continuing to lobby the federal government. And if they don't, we will. Now, let me be very clear, Scott. There is paid sick leave. There is. There is paid sick leave. We're talking about a top-up. And it won't be something that we want permanent. It's something to help us get through COVID-19. It's another tool in our war chest to fight this pandemic. It's something, and once again, the federal government neglected to address it in a federal budget. They are, 
they are building debt, something that I know your son introduced us at the beginning of the show. I don't know how he, that generation will ever be able to get out of the burden of debt that the federal government is leaving us with. And yet, three areas that they should have addressed, vaccines, uh, stricter measures at our borders, and helping people who have COVID-19 get through the pandemic, and they were glaring omissions. And yet, they are burdening us with billions and trillions of dollars of debt. Donna Skelly with us, conservative MPP for Glamborough, Flambrook, or sorry, Flamborough, Glambrook. <laughs> Donna, thank you for the time. Uh, be well. Thank Good luck. Thank you. Stay safe. You too. Here is today's daily commentary. Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has been found guilty on all three counts in the murder of George Floyd. America was on pins and needles waiting for the decision and expecting either celebration or mass demonstration. After the world watched the 9 minutes and 29 second video of a smug Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd until he was lifeless, it is hard to imagine any other verdict. However, in the United States, where we have seen this situation go unpunished so many times before and rates of occurrence continue to climb, why have they, we, not reached this conclusion earlier? And... After Chauvin is sentenced, how long before this happens again? Or is it a turning point, a time for change? I think we will see change, but not because we have evolved morally, but evolved technologically. It is unfortunate it took a 9 minute and 29 second video of a man being killed to convince us. I'm Scott Thompson. Well, anyone that doesn't think that the George Floyd death hasn't caused ripples around the world beyond just the state where it took place in uh, hasn't looked at the way it's impacted culture and discussion of race and discussion of racism and how we tackle these things. Uh, That is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. He tweeted, justice has been served. Racism is no place in our society and brutality should never be part of wearing a uniform. That in regard to the George Floyd murder. Uh, I guess some were critical, uh, suggesting O'Toole and uh, other politicians should stay out of the American justice system. Uh, The Prime Minister also commented on this, so I don't know. Uh, Aaron O'Toole feeling that because he's wore a uniform that uh, he deserves an opinion too and why shouldn't he why shouldn't everybody who watched that nine minute and 29 seconds be offered a chance to express uh their opinion my goodness let's bring in jennifer johnson washington correspondent for global news she is with us now jennifer thank you for the time i hope you're doing well thank you thanks for having me scott uh, many in uh, many in uh, Minneapolis, as well as across the country, uh, were preparing for demonstrations yesterday. And instead, obviously, things took a, a lot more of a celebratory tone, considering uh, the outcome here. It, it, were were people expecting this verdict yesterday? No, I mean it's very unusual in the United States for a police officer to be convicted of murdering somebody. Uh, it hardly ever happens, so I think that people were expecting um, either an acquittal or possibly a conviction of the lesser charge of manslaughter. They, I think most people were surprised um, that Derek Chauvin was actually convicted of second-degree murder and third-degree murder. Therefore, there were, the, you know, the anticipation was that, you know, people were expecting to have protests and potentially violent protests and as you said they ended up being celebratory marches and celebratory demonstrations many are asking uh does this change things what's different this time and jennifer what seems to have mattered most in all of this is that nine minutes and 29 seconds of video and 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 many after watching that it's obvious that this was the only outcome how how important how historic is that video well, the video, if you have the stomach to watch it, it really is very difficult to watch. And part of why it's so difficult to watch is that the bystanders are begging the police officers, not just Derek Chauvin, but the three other officers who are with him, to get Derek Chauvin's knee off of George Floyd's neck. And they repeatedly say it, that he can't breathe, that he's not breathing, please get off his neck. And one of the bystanders was a Minneapolis firefighter, a paramedic who was not in uniform, but she identified herself as that. 
and said to them, you know, he's not breathing. I need to do chest compressions. Identified herself. She was ignored. She then asked the officers if she could talk them through chest compressions to try to save George Floyd's life. So when you look at this and, and these bystanders being ignored over and over and George Floyd saying, I can't breathe 27 times, begging for his life, talking to his deceased mother, it's very, very difficult to watch. It's very compelling. And I think in this case, it made all the difference. So is this more about morality, doing the right thing, or technology? Uh, is this a change in morality or a change in technology that has brought this uh, to the public's attention? Well, I think that's a great question because I think it's the technology that really brought this to the public's attention. But I think in going forward, it will be morality of this. If, if we don't see what really happened on camera, if, if the body camera was turned off or there's no sound on it or the police dash cam you know what really happened i think that's going to be in the back of a lot of juries' minds and the possibility that something like this you know happened in the past and could happen in the future and so i think it's a combination the technology certainly aided this case but i think going forward there is going to be a higher moral standard because, you know, the American people and the world watch this man die on camera. So I think it's going to be a combination of things. And, you know, Americans, many Americans, I won't say all, but many Americans are looking for better policing and more humane policing, less excessive force. And, you know, particularly when it comes to people on drugs and mental, having mental health issues. And so I think going forward, this will be historic and, and it will lead to changes. I believe that. Uh, are you surprised some are saying, um, uh, even though this th- this jury arrived at this verdict, that this will not change things? Now all we'll see is more video of this. Um, but then others, and maybe we're naive because we're in another country, uh, you know, are thinking, how can anybody not, you know, want change after after seeing this? How concerned are Americans that, you know, it's all about remember the name, say the name, that this will be just another forgotten name? Well, I I think this case is going to be pretty hard to forget. But, you know, when you're a reporter, we get a lot of um, (laughs) comments, either through email, lately, LinkedIn, you name it, people find us. And I certainly on, you know, Twitter, people have said to me, you know, we would have saved George Floyd's life if he had not fought back you know, when he was initially arrested. And, and so you're always going to get that um, from the public. But I do think that now, given this video, so many people have seen it. I think it is giving pause to a lot of people who in the past may not have, you know, given this a second thought. So I, I, I do think this particular case has the potential for change. I really do. Obviously, uh, Minneapolis police force now under investigation. We saw federal uh, uh, agencies say that today. Any thoughts there? Uh, will uh, will we see this in other jurisdictions? Well, uh, you know, honestly, Scott, I'm I'm not done too often in my job, particularly after 25 years in Washington. But I was done to hear the attorney general announcing that the Justice Department will be conducting an investigation of policing tactics in Minnesota, in Minneapolis Police Department. There have been years, really decades, of complaints of excessive force and racism and profiling um, lodged against the police department, and nothing has happened. And so uh, when Merrick Garland made this announcement today, I was, I was surprised, and I think there are a lot of Minnesotans who are very pleased that the Justice Department is stepping in they are going to do a civil investigation, and the report will be made public. Uh, over and above an investigation in whatever police departments do uh, amongst themselves, which obviously, you know, you think they have to react to this, what sort of message do you think this sends to the rank and file, whether any changes are done at the government level or not? Uh, to me, this sends the message, you're going to get caught in pay if you're behaving this way. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think, as you said, there's a lot more cameras out there. Um, people people are constantly rolling their cell phone cameras. I think there's going to be much more accountability. Uh, let's be clear, the Minneapolis uh, city government had to pay $27 million settlement to the Floyd family 
And so everybody is on the line. The police officers have to be more careful. Um, the city managers, the city officials, they certainly don't want to be settling multi-million dollar cases, particularly at a time when cities and towns are struggling financially, particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic or during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think there's going to be much more accountability. I think they're going, police officers are definitely going to be more careful. The question is, are more people going to sign up to be a police officer or are they going to say, I don't want to take the chance? Mm. I mean, we've already heard at the, you know, the Capitol Police Force uh, publicly said the the uh, union head a couple of weeks ago that he's having a hard time filling 300 positions. I think that may be true in many jurisdictions across the country. Obviously, this is a, a very complex issue. Uh, how do you think police are going to respond, especially in a culture where there are so many guns? I mean, many, uh, you know, I've heard many say, uh, you know, as we're all playing Monday morning quarterback, I guess, you know, why do they go at people with such force? Why, uh, why do they use the tactics uh, that they use? And, and the counterpoint to that was there's so many guns that people don't know or their officers right. don't know what they're going to walk into. Will this uh, will this discussion also move uh, with policing also into some sort of stronger gun control? Um, you know, I've been hoping for decades for yeah. stronger gun control in this country, and it just it, it just never seems to happen. So, I. I I, I don't have a lot of faith in Congress ever passing stricter gun control laws. I have, you know, a little hope that maybe uh, stricter uh, universal background checks has a shot of passing in this Congress, you know, before the midterm elections. I don't know. But I think, you know, it has to be pointed out that the police are in a really tough situation in many places in America. There's too many guns out there. There are too many little handguns. You know, oftentimes they feel it's my, you know, it's my life or your life. They don't know if somebody's reaching for a wallet or reaching for a gun. They think they see a gun. It's a tough job. And, um, I, I, and I think this case was so much different than what the average police officer goes through day in and day out because this was so clearly egregious versus, you know, the nighttime chasing somebody down an alley and the person turning around you can't see and you think you see a gun and all right. of that. So, you know, it's it's going to be it's difficult for the police officers, um, but not in this case. But for others, it's going to be difficult going forward. Will it lead to more gun control legislation? I'm not particularly hopeful about that, Scott. We're, are we going to see the same sort of attention paid to the Dante Wright case? Uh, obviously, the young man who was shot uh, by the female officer who thought she was pulling her taser and instead pulled her her uh, her gun and, and shot him and, and killed him. Are we going to see this same sort of support for him? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a different case because the police that police officer immediately is, is heard on tape um, saying, I can't say what she said, but basically, oh my God, yeah. I, I, I just shot him. Um, yeah. Immediately showing remorse, and I and it's not what we saw in the case of Derek Chauvin and the George Floyd case. So I, certainly it's going to be a lot of attention, but um, that that other case appears to be a terrible mistake where this other, you know, the Chauvin case, uh, the, you know, you saw the tape. We've all seen the tape. There are no words, really. So um, it'll get attention. It'll be a different kind of attention. Uh, what about the girl in Ohio that was shot just a few hours after, before I think it was this verdict actually came down? There was an, a knife incident, uh, lunged out, and the officer shot her. Are we going to see more and more and more of this video on a daily basis, it seems? Well, you know, I don't know a lot about that case other than the police are saying that she was, you know, attempting to use that knife on two other girls. And so, um, you know, I, I just think in general we're going to see more protests. We're going to see more anger and um, more accountability because I feel that this is, this is a turning point for Americans, and particularly black Americans, that this was the one case where they feel that they were heard and, you know, and they, and they want to continue to be heard until there is better accountability with many police departments and, I also think that there's going to be a greater push, not only from the president and the vice president, to get the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act passed. The House passed that 
bill in June of 2020, and so almost a year ago, and the Senate hasn't taken it for a vote. And so, I, you know, that bans things like chokehold, kneeling on somebody's neck, um, more accountability, uh, and in some cases, civilian accountability um, for police departments and law enforcement departments. So there'll be a greater push for that to get passed, too, by the Senate. Uh, your thoughts on uh, what President Biden had to say. Uh, it's certainly not unusual for leaders to comment on this. We remember Barack Obama speaking out about mass shootings and such and in, in, in his book saying, uh, you know, it was just the same thing over and over again uh, for him. How, how significant are President's comments at this time? You know, it, it, it was interesting to see the president be uh, on stage and and saying that he had talked to the Floyd family and taking a, an active role in this case, or after the verdict was announced in this case, I, I thought that his message was was good. He, I, I think he had a point. You know, this isn't the end. There has to be more, and the more is he's. You know, he wants Congress. Well, not only is he pushing Congress for more gun control legislation, but he, as they said, he's he's pushing them to pass the George Floyd Act. And, you know, when this hasn't been taken to a vote for the Senate in almost a year, I thought he was right in saying, you know, let's at least bring it to the floor, take a vote, and see if we can, you know, do better going forward. Uh, you answered this sort of already, but uh, my last question, is this a turning point? We will remember George Floyd's name, won't we? Yeah, I, I don't think that anybody who saw all that video or part of that video will forget George Floyd's name. This sparked protests all around the world, not just in the United States, and I think it will be a turning point. I believe that people see this as, as I said, finally a jury heard us. Uh, finally, there was justice for a black man who was killed while in custody, while in police custody. And, you know, as we said, it's an unusual case because of that 9-minute and 29-second videotape. But I do believe this will lead to some change. Jennifer Johnson with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, talking about uh, Derek Chauvin found guilty on all three counts uh, in uh, a court proceeding yesterday. Jennifer, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, if you were a fan of uh, the Meatloaf album, Bad Out of Hell, you remember seeing on the cover of the album Words and Music uh, by Jim Steinman. Uh, he has passed away at age uh, 73 and was very much responsible for the writing of that album. Also locally, uh, Hamilton's Bob Lenoir, Bob Lenoir has passed away at the age of 73. Obviously legendary Canadian sound engineer, record producer, uh, all that sort of thing. And sad news in the Hamilton uh, music industry as well with the passing of Bob. To talk about all of this, let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music and is with us now. Alan, as always, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. No, it's it's rare that on, on we have two announcements of of big deaths on the same day. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know it seems as rock and roll and pop music as we know it gets older and older and older. Uh, we're having more of these discussions. Talk about uh, the Lanois family and their mark on music, especially in this city. Well, they moved from Quebec, and Dan Lanois and his brother Bob started up a recording studio in their mom's basement in Hamilton. And uh, when Bob was 22, he ended up establishing a proper recording studio, which is still there, Grant Avenue. Very, very important uh, recording studio, not just for Hamilton and Ontario, but also for the rest of the world. A lot of people went to Grant Avenue to record. Uh, That included Brian Eno. That included Peter Gabriel. And uh, together, Bob and, and Dan turned into something of a production powerhouse, which saw Dan mm. end up being taken under Brian Eno's wing, where he ended up recording music with everybody from Peter Gabriel to Bob Dylan to U2 and the Joshua Tree album. And if you look on the Joshua Tree album, you will see a little shout-out to Bob for, uh, I guess, bringing Dan along and, and, and introducing everybody to uh, the Canadian way of doing things. What is the significance of the Hamilton music industry? Because I don't think I really fully understood this until I moved here several years ago uh, and started working here several years ago. Uh, there's quite a history here, isn't there? There there really is. The problem is that up until recently, it hasn't been celebrated as much as it should. I mean, we can expand, you know, from Hamilton into Burlington into uh, 
Six Nations and, and, the, and Dundas and the, the area around Hamilton has always had a, a tr- tremendously rich history. I mean, you think about Teenage Head being a punk mm. band that played their first shows before the Sex Pistols ever did. You think about Dan Snaith, who is uh, working uh, in, in, out of uh, Dundas and has won uh, a couple of Polaris Music Prizes as working under the name Caribou. You think about Robbie Robertson coming out of Six Nations. You think about uh, you know how Levon Helm and the Hawks uh, did a tremendous amount of work. Uh, sorry, Levon, uh, uh, Ronnie Hawkins. And, and the Hawks later to become the band to doing a whole bunch of stuff in in the Toronto area, and uh, you know we have you know Walk Off the Earth out of Burlington, we have Silverstein out of Burlington. It's it's a, a very big you know it's got a tremendously rich history, and then we go back to Grant Avenue, which still exists and is still a fabulous recording uh, facility. They have some microphones there that I've I've only read about these these ancient mm. World War II German microphones that sound absolutely fantastic. And it's where Dan Lanois, who, you know, obviously one of the world's great producers, uh, cut his teeth. And Bob had been working there as a producer, as an engineer, as a co-owner, and as a sometime performer uh, for, for many, many, many years. Um, in fact, he uh, he became quite a, a, a harmonica player. And he's got mm-hmm. an album called Snake Road, which is named after, yes, that road going up to Waterdown. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk about Jim Steinman. This album, Bad Out of Hell, uh, for those that remember, it was monumental back at the time. And, and Meatloaf, more of an actor playing a part than an actual rock star. This is Jim Steinman's album. Is that accurate? It is. Uh, Meatloaf was very much a off-Broadway actor. The first time anybody ever saw anything to do with Meatloaf was when he played Eddie in the Rock and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, Jim Steinman was a failed solo performer. He released an album in 1973 that nobody cared about. But then he ran across this guy who called himself Meatloaf, who had a really unique uh, singing voice. His, the, the, the range in which he sang was, was, is, is quite different than a lot of people. And he thought, yes, this could be the voice for what I have in my head. And back then, it wasn't uncommon to have somebody, you know, the, the parts of a, uh, a song being uh, delegated to various people. For example, you think of Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Elton John would take care of the singing and the, and the music, right. El- and Bernie would take care of all the lyrics. In Jim Steinman's case, he took care of the music and the lyrics and the production. And uh, he had this, this thing, this bat out of hell idea in his head. He got together with Meatloaf. It took a couple of years to get it done. It was originally put out on a label called Cleveland because nobody else wanted it. But then it eventually ended up on Epic Records and sold 50 million copies. And Paradise by the Dashboard Light became this gigantic AM radio hit, even though it ran almost eight minutes. Yeah. And uh, that, that was, that's the thing that really launched Jim Steinman's career. And after that, a lot of people came knocking on his door. And what they were looking for, what these artists were looking for, were highly overwrought, extremely emotional songs that would be sung, you know, with a tremendous amount of, of power and gravitas. So <clears throat> you think about Bonnie Tyler and holding out for a hero and total eclipse mm. of the heart and uh, making love out of nothing at all from air supply and. Uh, believe it or not, uh, Sisters of Mercy, the great English goth band, he wrote, co-wrote and co-produced a, a, an album called Floodland, which was extremely good, and uh, continued to do that kind of thing um, for the rest of his life. As you mentioned, uh, this album was not filled with three-minute pop songs. So why did this work? Now, obviously, the 70s, more open to sort of the concept-style album, but what was it about? Why did this work? It shouldn't have. It honestly shouldn't have. Hmm. But uh, the, the, the key to the Bad Out of Hell album is, is Paradise by the Dashboard Light because it is a fantastic story song with a guy and a girl and a car and a radio and a baseball game and who knows where things are going to end up. And hmm. it was one of those, it's, it's a perfect sort of dating song. I mean, it, it, I think I was in grade 10, grade 11 at the time when that song came out. And mm-hmm. it was 
a cultural phenomenon because it's it spoke of things in a way uh, that we could understand, and at the same time, it was like listening to an old school musical. And you know, you know yeah. Jim Steinman was very much uh, one of those Broadway kind of guys in terms of the way he he thought about music, and. Eventually, Bad Out of Hell did become a musical on Broadway, but you can see the seeds of it back in 1977. How difficult when you do something like this to repeat this success? How do, where do you go from here? <laughs> well, that was the problem. They tried Bad Out of Hell too, and uh, it yeah. did not work. In fact, both uh, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman later said that that was a mistake. We were pressured into it. We thought we could capture lightning in a bottle twice, and and you just can't. Uh, per, um, Bad Out of Hell was an album that came out at exactly the right time when everybody was really into it, The song, uh, really into this kind of music. The song translated very well on both AM and FM radio, which was still in its ascendance. And uh, there was just something about Meatloaf back then. He was this lovable, long-haired schlub who yeah. uh, at the same time seemed very, very, very vulnerable uh, and, and sensitive. So it, it worked on so many different levels, but that only can happen for a specific and finite amount of time. And it never really, you know, Meatloaf never was as big as he was with that one album. He was never able to do anything substantial out in music, uh, away from Jim Steinman ever since. And, uh, you know, he became quite, quite the actor, but it was, it was one of those albums that came out at the perfect time. Uh, obviously, in the digital world we live now, more emphasis back on the single. Uh, oddly enough, is is there room for a concept album like this in a digital world? Do we still see this? Well, that's a big debate right now. Um, there are artists that are con- going to continue to do these sorts of things, whether or not they're successful, because I think we've talked about this before, is how the album seems to be in decline and people are interested in individual songs that are strung together in a playlist with unrelated Mm -hmm. songs. You know, they Mm -hmm. want their quick hits and they don't want to necessarily spend 40 minutes engaged in the same themes over, you know, uh, over that period of time. So I, I, I'm a fan of the concept album, but that's for people who are prepared to sit down for, you know, X number of minutes at a time and digest the libretto of, of this this cohesive musical work that has to be listened to in a specific order, it's uh, we'll still see it. But it, I mean, the concept album was at its biggest in, in the late '60s and early '70s, and when punk came along in the 1970s, that you know stuck a big pin in it. But there have been some from time to time that have have, uh, have arisen. Uh, I guess the the most popular one of recent years might have been in 2004 with American Idiot from from Green Day. Since yeah, then, yeah. though, we really haven't seen that many because the, the concept is, has gone... I mean, there, there have been some, but uh, in terms of something that has a, 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 a cultural effect, it just hasn't happened. Yeah, the the days of side one, then side two have left us, it seems. Yeah, it does feel like that. Or even putting on a CD and just sitting there through the whole thing. I remember, and I've told you the story before, when, when my daughter went through her vinyl stage and she bought a turntable, or we got her a turntable, and we're putting on the album, which she paid like 30 bucks for or something like that. Well, how do I get it to change tracks? You lift the needle up and you move it over. That's how you do it. Uh, yeah. It's changed everything. Uh, Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, talking about the passing of Bob Lanois and Jim Steinman. Alan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.